Hi everyone, and welcome to What's Design Anyway. I'm Daniela Sachs, founder of Impactful Design Studio. If you're wondering what on earth design means, what it's got to do with anything, how to use it, or how to find your place within it, you're in the right spot. Join me as I delve into all of these topics and more with an incredibly interesting, inspiring, and intriguing lineup of guests. What has design got to do with women, conservation, and communities? In this episode, I'm so excited to be bringing you Rose Balbongi, who is a champion for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the conservation space in Africa. In this rich and thought-provoking conversation, we explore the embedded tension that lies between the topic of inclusion and diversity especially when it comes to women in the complex context of conservation in Africa. Rosewell speaks about how and why we need to design more inclusive environments that are able to uphold and embrace the diversity needed to make conservation successful. She speaks to how good design can only be created when we take time to appreciate the nuances of the specific environment and cultural systems we're in, how important it is in the search for solutions for us to always keep an open mind and not dismiss ideas or beliefs that counter our own. She also profoundly shares why we need to stop obsessing about creating more seats at one table and instead focus on how to create new tables new chairs, and new rooms. This conversation was such a gift, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed having it. Roosevelt, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited um, about this conversation that, that we're going to have around designing environments, um, which is a, a massive freaking topic. So who knows where we'll end up. But I thought, you know, it's something that we've been speaking about since actually we met in Rwanda, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, um, you know, we were both in Rwanda as one of eight women in conservation um, at the African Leadership University uh, MBA program with like an extra component in the business of biodiversity. And, you know, we started talking about the complexity of how do we design better conservation areas? And more importantly, being women in conservation, how do we design environments for women? Yeah, it's. I feel like we've been talking about this forever, and the the discussion just gets more and more intense. Like there's so many layers mm. to building up um, systems and environments that support women in conservation, and sometimes you feel like you've nailed it. Like, oh, this is the solution, and then another layer just comes in, and it's a continuous discussion. But at the same time, there are situations and circumstances that are so unique to women in conservation. 
and then there are shared experiences that women have across the board in different sectors that I think mm-hmm. that we can learn from um, by by holding more discussions with each other. So, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm ready. Let's jump into it. Let's jump in. Yeah, and I think what we're going to have to do in the links below is you've uh, written some really amazing stuff. Uh, and I think we're going to have to link to some women in conservation um, uh, resources uh, for people who want to know more about the topic. Um, but perhaps a good starting point is to kind of explain why we're talking about like designing better environments for women. What's the problem with how things are now? Well, probably I'll start with my experience um, in my professional background. I didn't typically start off in conservation. I started off in the corporate sector, and that has its own set of opportunities and challenges that's very different mm-hmm. in conservation. So when I started working at my current organization, I was we started off working in the city and eventually moved into the Masai Mara landscape where I currently live and work. And when you come to the ground and you're living here all the time, then the dynamics really start to come to play in terms of the opportunities and also the challenges that women face um, in -hmm. conservation, especially in this space. One of the immediate things that I faced was just the environment itself. Um, How supportive is it for women to work here? And when I say supportive, I'm talking about the external environment to begin with. The external environment, you're just looking at housing. I remember when we first came, we did not have offices um, in this space and we were constructing. So which means we had to look for hotels, places to stay. It was so unfriendly. Um, A lot of the hotels are horrible. So we had to go really far to get a place to stay. And looking at that, just looking at the capability of a woman to come to the field and work was challenging Mm. because a lot of the time when you're coming to the field, just the basic amenities, can I get a clean toilet was a huge Mm -hmm. challenge to have. And then when we started the construction of the offices and the facilities, looking at the design of the houses, you were working primarily in a male dominated industry. And so Mm -hmm. when men are jumping into the design, the first thing they're thinking about is, oh, you know, let's maximize on space, let people share rooms, let everyone share a bathroom and a toilet. And I'm just like, oh, you know, women, we are so particular. Um, If you put women to share spaces, um, especially if it's in a professional workspace, there's going to be a lot of conflict because women generally like their own space. And we have our own mm-hmm. way of doing things and you have to appreciate that. So then there's a lot of pushback to that. And we finally managed to build um, houses that were accommodative enough, self-contained, decent houses. Mm-hmm. But then with time, we quickly ran into another challenge um, where you face now women becoming mothers. So a lady has a baby mm-hmm. and she comes and she says, yeah, I still want to work for you, but now I have a baby and we're in the middle of nowhere. You can't tell me to leave my baby unless you're telling me to leave yeah. my job. Um, yeah. And you immediately look at that and you're like, wow, okay, so how again do we go back to designing um, houses that can accommodate a mother and her baby? And you're also looking at basic features and security because again, you're out in the wild, which means there's wildlife all around you. So you're also concerned for the mother, for the safety of the baby, running into wild animals, Um, And also just having time for themselves and access to basic facilities. So that has been an ongoing challenge that we've had to overcome and we keep learning. I can't say that 
our organization is there a hundred percent. I think every time we, we we get to another phase, now we have a lot more women working for the organization, and mm-hmm. with that just comes new and newer newer things that you've never really thought about. Um, and, and we keep adapting and growing and stretching for that. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that people critically need to think about is just the impact of making sure that a woman in that space has Mm. a physical space to feel comfortable um, and able to actually perform. So when Mm. you're designing in conservation, especially when you're putting women in remote areas, a lot of the time women are put in unsafe places. When you talk to women in conservation who are rangers or in other spaces, you find that they don't really have decent housing facilities to stay in. Sometimes they need to share with the men. And that can also put you at risk because you're in the middle of nowhere mm. with a strange man. Anything, anything can happen. Can happen. And that will discourage the women from participating in conservation. You'll find that most of them will opt to go home. And again, if I'm married, how will my husband feel if I'm in the middle of nowhere with a man and we're sharing a tent yeah. together? It doesn't really make sense. Um, so we need to look at such things and really think about how are we designing just the basic structures to support women in such spaces. Mm. Yeah. I mean, often what, when we think about um, women in conservation, we like to get, you know, very academic. And we forget that that it, it really, the, the basics are like actually building from the physical infrastructure upwards when it comes to designing uh, more equitable environments or even safer spaces. Um, that we are literally talking about the design of the spaces as the starting point, you know, the, the yeah. physical safety and security. And then we have, you know, all of the, the psychological. And when people think about women in conservation, I think the majority of people might think of women working in desk jobs, you know, in a city somewhere. Yes. And we don't realize that we're also talking about women who are rangers in the field, in the middle of nowhere, like the Maasai Mara and, and, you know, other incredible um, national parks across Africa. And I mean, they're they're still a minority, women on the ground. Yeah, they are completely. And we are doing everything to support and get more women involved in such activities. But if you don't factor that simple thing of where is mm-hmm. I've hired this woman, fantastic, you have a female ranger, where is she going to work? Where is she going to sleep? Mm-hmm. How does that look like? Then she's not going to stay there very long. So you'll be no. excited to have a woman working for you for a month or two months. Then shortly thereafter, she's gone. I had a very interesting conversation mm-hmm. once with a manager in a camp, and he told me that the moment his female staff get pregnant, he knows they're leaving. They, they never stay he knows they're leaving because they're not allowed to come back and stay with their babies. And maternity leave in Kenya is three months. Um, At three months, your baby's still too young to leave alone at home for long periods of time. So Mm -hmm. most of them opt to to leave work and look for something else to do, which is very unfortunate. So there's almost you basically putting an age cap. So you're saying, you know, you can work when you're young, we'll have you. But as soon as you want to have a baby, like this is not the profession for you. Like, you know, you're you're no longer a preferred candidate. Yeah, we, and, and, and that's really, really sad. And I think it extends to even more than just having a baby. You can also look at it in terms of 
how safe do I feel in this environment as a woman? Mm. Because if you're telling me to share rooms with men or to be in very close proximity with men in, in a very remote place, mm. um, you're not always feeling very secure and safe. You know, you hope for the best, yeah. but you just, you, you never really know what can happen out in the wild. And if something happens to you, what systems have we created in place to support women to report and actually get action on that level does it actually even exist do we have policies in place to support women in that sense if you're working in a male-dominated field and you go to your supervisor and you say that you know this person made an inappropriate comment to me Mm. are the systems and structures in place for that to actually be taken seriously or are you going to Mm. go unheard and continue to face the same um, challenges in that space yeah, I mean, because at the, at the end of the day, a lot of our societies are very uh, patriarchal. Um, so I know that I've had lots of comments. I mean, just working on, on the tourism side of it, working with at a, at a government level, like mm-hmm. me too, <laughs> definitely applied to a lot of scenarios without going into details. And yeah. I just can't help but think like, you know, if this was something that I've had to battle, you know, in my journey in working in, which has been in, in a protected way, like, oh, you know, it, it happened at events, you know, with, with government people, like how much worse is it when you now on a day-to-day basis, this is your colleagues, you're in the middle of nowhere who's going to, you know, there's also the question yeah. of like, who's going to be believed more? Yes, sometimes, and it creates a it's a it's a really you know you the, the physical safety and the psychological safety kind of go together. So you're creating yeah. a very uncomfortable way. So we we say we want more women in conservation, but we don't have a it, it doesn't seem possible in a way of, of yeah. how it works at the moment, how the system is. Yeah, that I I completely agree, and there's still a lot to work on that um and i think we need to we need to really interrogate some of the interventions that we propose and how we want to roll them out some things might work in some places like when you talk about women in conservation who have a desk mm. job there are some interventions that might work very well there um but that would look very different when you're talking about community-based conservation, people who are out Mm. in the field and are facing different circumstances, and you're working with communities and this culture and there's all these other different factors that you have to face in. You cannot just wake up in an instant and say, hey, we are changing this and this is how we're going to roll it out. You'll face a lot of resistance. You'll face Mm -hmm. a lot of even women shying away from the intervention you're proposing because they will not feel comfortable. They would rather, you know, just say, hey, I'm going to keep the peace. I'm going to go along with what the men are saying and completely disregard what you're proposing. So there's a need for people to take time to learn and understand and appreciate the environment, especially when it comes to community-based conservation, mm. appreciate the environment and the dynamics that play in. And I like what you said, um, talking about you know involving men because you need to involve men in some of these proposals and interventions that we are creating. You cannot say that you're creating systems and environments for women in isolation. The men have mm-hmm. to play a role in it, especially right now because they have largely they have the power so you want to 
engage them and involve them when you're designing some of these things, have their buy-in and let them also be the ones who are pushing for some of the changes that you're bringing forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when, when I think about some of the experiences I've had on a personal level, I remember when I was still relatively new at my workplace, um, I ran into someone in the community and he made really, really inappropriate comments. And I was not comfortable with that at all. And I went mm-hmm. back to the office and I remember just, you know, pulling all my male colleagues and saying, hey, you know, this person really made inappropriate comments to me. And, you know, they were surprised and some didn't really show much expression. But Mm -hmm. thereafter, I could tell that a conversation was had. They did not tell me anything. To this day, they've never said anything. But that person completely stayed away from me and they did not try to engage me. And I could tell, okay, these people came back and told you, you need to respect this woman. And I really appreciated them for stepping in because they were mm. able to do something that I couldn't do, especially in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. And but they also did it within within the cultural place. And I think that often when you come as an outsider to an environment, it's very easy to say things need to change. We're gonna put in policies, we're gonna change this overnight, we're gonna have new structures, you know, yeah. donors can put in like new regulations to say things have to happen. Yeah, But there is a culture and way of doing things within this environment. Yeah. And, and you made that, that such a critical point that you can't like click your finger and make these things happen overnight just because you have a, a new policy or new way of working. You, you need to figure out how to do it in a way that fits and can be accepted and supported by the specific environment that you're in and it's really complex it's it's incredibly complex daniela as i said there are so many layers to it and Mm. you really need to take time to appreciate the environment you're in you really really have to take the time to appreciate it because i think another dynamic that people also don't talk about is women who support the patriarchy because it's there it happens so you can come in you know, lobbying for change with all your policies mm. and all your brilliant ideas and talking to the women and going like, we're doing this together in solidarity. And the women who's talking, looking at you is saying, no way, no way. I want a man to be my boss. I want the men to continue leading. I'm not comfortable with you coming into this space and saying that women need to take up the mantle. So um, I'm not going to support you. And Mm-hmm. It shows up in very interesting ways. You're proposing something and you're saying, hey, let's all do this. And they really don't get the support. So that's also something that we have to think about. What yeah. does it mean when you're in a patriarchal system, but also working with women who do support the patriarchy? Because that is a factor. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's something that we don't take into consideration. And a lot of a lot of talking around diversity and inclusion is very black and white. So, you know, you can be a woman who is, you know, I'll use the word feminist, who you, you know, you're like equal women's rights and we need full inclusion, full diversity in our workforce, in this place. And you think that every other woman needs to believe what you believe in, in the space. And it's like, hold on. No, because everybody is coming from their their different point of view, their different um, cultural background, their environment. So what you want and what you want to um, 
I kind of, I kind of want to say that this the system that that you want to design has to take these specific, like individual points of view and feelings into place. So you can make a blanket that, as you say, there are women that are very happy with the way things are, um, and and you can judge and you can oh that's so terrible, but who 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 are we to judge? Exactly. Like a, a cult, the, the, a culture, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a, yeah. It is. And it's not to say that those women are wrong. There's no, no one who's right and wrong in this situation. It's just that things work different for different people. Um, yeah. Yesterday, someone asked me a question and she told me what happens when you trying to create a seat at the table, the famous table that we're always talking about. Yeah. What if you're trying to create a seat at the table and you bring in someone and that person isn't doing the same for the rest of the people. They are holding on to the seat. And my response to that was you cannot have expectations when you're helping people get a seat at the table just because you bring somebody to the table doesn't mean that they are mandated to bring other people to the table. Mm. The dynamics look very different for everyone. So for myself, having been raised up in the city, I would say I'm privileged because I grew up with a lot of resources at my dispense. Mm. And I know that there's a lot that I'm, I'm accessible to. So my perception of getting a seat at the table looks very different from a woman who's had to struggle and fight tooth and nail to get to where she is. And she's the first mm -hmm. person to get there in the whole place. You cannot put yourself and that lady at the same level. You have completely different experiences. And it's not to say that that's what happens, that those women from that background are necessarily the people who don't create space. People have different experiences. Some do, some yeah. don't. Even some people who are very privileged still block the door for other women to get there. But we're all just very different in terms of how mm -hmm. we are, how we design things. Um, and, and so we cannot hold expectations to other people. I think we should continue opening the doors, um, creating new tables, not necessarily always just sitting on that one table. Create new tables, mm, create I new chairs, that. create yeah. a whole new room if you can. Um, and hope that everybody joins along in your vision. Mm. Yeah. Um, that is incredible. I, I, that, that is so profound. And it's, you know, I, I think that that's what, for me, you, you've kind of rephrased um, inclusion, equality, um, in, in such a deep and meaningful way. It's really acknowledging that, things work differently for different people. So instead of trying to get a, a seat around the same table, it's looking at how do we create new tables, new chairs, new rooms, so yeah. that we are accommodating the fact that we are all different. We bring in different experiences. We have different value systems based on our different backgrounds. Yeah. And if we really wanna be inclusive, it's really taking our differences into consideration equally instead of saying oh well because you know i think women should sit here and you think they're my my opinion's more modern or you know progressive so you know mine is mine means something and yours is traditional so it's worthless like 
that's actually, <laughs> I think it demeans um, what inclusion, uh, inclusion really stands for. But what you've said also makes me curious because when we're dealing with designing spaces for women in community conservation, you said something earlier that I was just like, hold on. You know, we have an issue where we're bringing like, you know, women into remote spaces and, and you know, it's, it's the issue of well, what happens when they have, they have children and husbands and families and, you know, they're quite far away. Is that not the basis for kind of relooking at, and I know it's something that, that, you know, we, we, we really have been trying to do in conservation so long, especially in community conservation, which is bring communities more into conservation as if it's, that's a super simple thing, yeah. but you, it does make you wonder whether we need to, in wanting more women to become rangers, we need to be looking at how the women from the communities who are living there could potentially become rangers because then they are with their family, they are with their baby, they are with their children. It seems that that those issues of separation or limitation wouldn't wouldn't factor so strongly. But I, I don't know what your thoughts are. I mean, as if it's so simple, but perhaps there's a quite a lot of complexity to that also. Uh, I think there's a lot of complexity because sometimes I try to put myself in their in their shoes and I try to imagine that I want to support my family and I get a job as a ranger and I'm in the middle of nowhere and I have my husband and I have my kids. Will I really have peace of mind at work knowing that my family is somewhere else and I've not seen them for a couple of days and I don't really know mm -hmm. how they are doing because I'm in this very remote place. Maybe I don't even have a network. Um I'd be very disturbed and probably I would want to leave the job in a very short amount of time. It wouldn't be worth it because when you tell a woman to choose between her family and work, a lot of the time women would choose their family. Um, and you also have to look at having a supportive spouse. Do you have a supportive spouse who would be understanding and actually be willing for you to be in such a space and that cuts across to rangers it cuts across to even women at my level in my organization i've seen mm -hmm. those dynamics play out where you see somebody's completely unsettled because then you want to go home to your family and you, mm. you, you, you're just not settled and it really creates a very interesting picture of conservation and how conservation is set up to enable women to work in such spaces because we do need more women and there's a lot of work there's a lot of need for women to be in that space there's mm. a lot of contribution they bring to the table their voices their ideas and everything but constantly when you're going into such environments and the way we design the systems and you tell somebody i want you to be in the office eight to five monday to friday mm -hmm. How realistic are we being when we talk about that? Is it something that she's able to do even when she's home with her kids? Is she able to have her laptop mm -hmm. with her and be able to do a few things and, and send you that report that you need? Mm -hmm. And if you're looking at a lady with rangers, what I've seen some of the conservancies do, which I think is good, is to try and place them near and closer to the smaller towns, as close as possible yeah. to their homes, so that at least it's not so far off removed, which I think is a very good consideration to have. So I think as that we are designing sense. and as we're proposing some of these things, we also need to be very practical about our approach. 
And I think it's also a challenge I'd like to pose even to the donors as they talk about it, because it's very easy to come and say, we need more women in this space. But what does mm. that really mean? And for me, sometimes when the donors are saying, hey, how are you recruiting? How many female staff did you hire? I feel like telling them, like, you know, you also need to give me money to construct and actually build facilities for them to stay. Because when they come and I tell them I don't have a house for you, I'm telling them to go in the middle of nowhere to go and look for a weird, strange room. And they're going to get uncomfortable and then they'll leave very quickly. Yeah, because that you also have de facto in transportation. You're in the middle of the Maasai Mara. It's not like you can walk to work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you you can't walk to work. Um, you you're you know you're you're staying in most of the houses here are very basic. It's just a single room. You mm-hmm. share the toilets and you share the bathrooms with everybody else. Um, you know, not most people are going to be comfortable in such situations. And you can imagine complexities like if you live with. Mm-hmm if you have a child that you want to come with, what does that look like? Um, It gets harder and harder. And sometimes you find that when you are trying to recruit and hire for positions, these are things that weigh heavy on you because you can meet a fantastic candidate and you can hire them. But then the first question that comes to mind is, so how long would you really stay with me? Yeah. 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 I mean, and it's, it's such a challenge because you, you can understand the need for the organization to be, in the Mara, like on the ground, yes. you know, in the center of everything. But that that has created so much complexities when when you are that little bit removed, it's it's like you you that this it's like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place in a way, you know, because it's either you're remote and it means you're in the center of everything you you can you really can do your job the best because you're there like in that way because you you can have your finger on the pulse so much more but then from a hr perspective uh you want to hire a woman but but now you know (laughs) you're remote you don't have the facilities you need to design so much more versus you know being removed from the site slightly and being in a town where where perhaps it's easier for a woman to move with her family so it's 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 so difficult like to juggle all of these things it it is and you know some of the organizations some of the conversations i've had with people they look at us and they say oh you know you guys are just complicating things and the easy thing to do is just open the office you know in in a town and make it easy Mm -hmm. for everyone and i can understand that and i can appreciate it but at the same time Having lived and worked with this community for a a couple of years now, I've also come to Mm. meet the youth, the young people. You meet young boys, you meet young girls who, born and raised in the Mara, they have their degrees, they're just looking for that one opportunity to get a job. And we've become Mm. that hope and that beam of light. And the fact that we are here makes it as makes us very accessible for them and gives them the opportunity mm-hmm. to gain the experience that they need. You're then able to tap into the future and the youth of tomorrow. You can see the young girls, the ones you're like, yeah. I want you to be a CEO in 10 years. So I'm willing to take a chance on you. Come for an internship, come for an attachment. The fact that we're there on the ground, it's easy for them to access us and gain those opportunities. So I find it very complex, again, 
when you're talking mm-hmm. about designing the environment and the systems, because most people will tell you, oh, it's an easy solution. Go to the town, open your office there, everybody will be happy. But then you cannot ignore the fact that when we're talking about conservation and building the future of conservation, engaging the youth and getting them involved in what we do, you have to be on the ground. You have to yeah. demonstrate to them what you're doing and also give them that opportunity to work with you so that tomorrow they're the ones taking up the mantle and continuing mm. the cause. So it's, it, again, it's very complicated. But I, I mean, I think you've articulated that so well, that this shift and commitment to to really talking about community conservation means that you need to be in the community and accessible to the community. So it might create difficulties for hiring people outside, yes. but you 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 really are um you you're physically designed the environment to bring the community into um the organization and you know the con- the whole community conservation um subject it is a rather complex subject but it is it's more you know it it's it seems like it's it's a much more tangible way when we're talking about that versus the the traditional model of of conservation where that it, that was removed you know we're protecting this environment um mm-hmm. you know against people to we're protecting this environment with our communities with people yeah so yeah, it comes back to almost inclusivity, but unfortunately you get exclusivity as a result, which is kind of always going to be the case in some way, right? It, it, yeah, it's you you can't um it's hard to create a space that will have everybody in. I think it's going to be a mm-hmm. continuous discussion for some time. There are some people who will fall out and there are some people who will increase and it's a continuous dialogue. What are we doing? How are we doing it? How do we balance things out for sure? I'm not from the community, um, but I'm fortunate enough to have settled in pretty well. And I think I'm enjoying my experience there and I enjoy interacting and meeting with people and seeing the change that you actually make in that space. Mm. And that enhances my commitment to making sure that they continue to get those opportunities because then you realize that when you come from different towns and different spaces, there's a privilege that you hold. And it's yeah. very easy for you to step back from that. It's easy for me to step back from the Mara tomorrow and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to somewhere totally different to look for another opportunity. But for most of the people here, this is all they have. And, yeah. you know, seeing that and seeing how much it means to them, it really inspires a level of commitment. Um, and, and that's why it's important to look at the environment and how we are creating it and how do we make it how do we make it as you said more inclusive but at the same time also uphold the diversity that's needed to make conservation mm-hmm. successful in this space yeah and i think also the complexity is that that we talk about like quite a blanket term like community conservation um, and like the thought is that we're going to come up with a perfect solution and we can like copy it and place it everywhere. Yeah. And the reality is that each and every community is so unique, their cultures, their traditions, 
their relationship, their history, their heritage with, with the environment um, is unique. So it's not, it's not like a copy and paste design. Like, yes, there are certain principles or values, but to be truly, to be truly designing and kind of inclusive environments in conservation, you have to take that diversity into account. Um, you know, it makes me think of design thinking. There's like this very quick thing in the beginning that is empathy as mm -hmm. if it's in one second, you can step into somebody else's shoes. And I think the challenge with 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 um, community conservation is that there are so many levels of complexity in, in each and every different community. And often one area comprises of numerous communities. Yes. And they're different to each other, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Absolutely. something that works here then doesn't work in, in a different community on the same site. And you're like, ah, oh, no, you know, design says we should be able to copy and paste and everything should just work. But it's not that simple. It's not that simple. And well, again, it's interesting thinking about that because community conservation I've seen is more successful when you actually do engage the community because they understand each other. They understand their culture. Mm -hmm. They're able to tell you very quickly, this is going to work, this is not going to work, as opposed to trying to bring external people who then will be like, hey, can't you get someone from the community to be the middleman and help me with A, B, C, D, E? Mm -hmm. So I think that there's, a, there's an importance, and I think we really need to learn how to respect um, communities and what they bring to the table, especially in terms of the knowledge they have. A lot of them know what works. They've been living here for forever. They know what to do. They know how to protect mm -hmm. the system. They know how to protect the environment. They've been doing it. We are the ones who've come in and interfered and said, hey, we're going to throw you, all of you out and make this a park and we're going to fence it. And they, yeah. they, they, were, they were living and doing their own their own thing without our input. We are the ones who came and messed it up. So if you ask me, we should just give it back to them. They will figure it out pretty well. It's such, a, like, I love that. So controversial, but so true. I mean, we talk about the fencing of conservation as being a very colonial um, mm. conservation model because it literally was. Um, communities across the African continent have been living in harmony with wildlife and the colonial model said, well, we're going to fence the, the wildlife in as if we can fence in an ecosystem and the ecosystem won't be affected. And we're going exactly. to exclude and move the communities out because it's the communities that are a threat to the environment. So we created a whole new narrative that made communities evil, uh, use of wildlife evil, um, mm -hmm. you know, and we created a fallacy that that we can have an operable working perfect ecosystem um within a fenced off area which isn't the case i mean your friend julie i i mean i, I like she told me the most profound thing about the massive wildebeest migration and yeah. that you know who we have or how much like funding going into protecting something which is not that old i don't know if, if you want to share that that story about um, well we talk we, we talk a, a lot about how thing, things go in the ecosystem 
you know, the wildebeest migration has been made into this massive marketing tool, which is fantastic. I mean, it brings in a lot of revenue and we have to appreciate it. But there's so much more that happens within the Mara that people don't see. One of the things we talk about, and I think we've also talked about it with you, sometimes is the protection of the sexy five animals, the elephants. The, the big lions. charismatic species. Yeah, you know, the, the ones that bring in the money and we completely yeah. neglect everything else that happens within the environment. And there's so much to see when you're here. You barely think, I, I personally am here, I don't think about the wildebeest at all. I'm always very excited to see other smaller animals and you know, you get curious about the plants and what does that plant do? And are they dying out? And you know, just the different things, the different elements within the ecosystem that people don't pay attention to, that don't get mm. funding. Um, it's very easy to label the wildebeest migration, which is dwindling down severely over the years. It's seriously dwindling down because of different factors that are coming into play, mostly climate change. It's not been mm. raining a lot in the Mara. This year has been really dry. There's a lot of concern. There's a scarcity of grass, which means a lot of the herbivores don't have anywhere to graze. The mm. carnivores don't have anything to eat. Um pastoralism is being affected so people are also very concerned about their livelihoods in terms of mm-hmm. their cows and you know getting food to eat and all of that so it's it's a very big play and an interesting dynamic that people need to think about we can't just talk about the Maasai Mara and focus on the wildebeest there's a whole load of things that happens here um, mm. yeah that needs more attention and yeah you know the the with climate change, um, it really kind of adds a whole nother dimension to being able to work with communities and, and figuring out, you know, as as the ecosystem changes, how do you how do you adapt um, mm-hmm. and, and enable those changes so that that you know harmony continues to be restored which which is nature you know nature always kind of finds this equilibrium again yeah. but we the ones often which disrupt the equilibrium from reforming um which which we have with the fences so i know like in south africa for example we've got parks that have way too many elephants so then they have to cull the elephant because the carrying mm-hmm. capacity so we talk about carrying capacity now because, you know, we've completely disrupted the ecosystem. So, you know, we talk about the carrying capacity of different species because we fenced off an area. And it, and it is a huge question whether now with this happening, we need to start thinking about how do we link different, different um, wildlife areas to enable more movement of animals? Because if they could mm-hmm. move further, which is the traditional pattern animals didn't live <laughs> just in this tiny little contained space we created they migrated because the rains moved water yeah. moved grass yeah. moved yes you know and and, so. and to be to be honest um i think before colonialism and all these things happened there was no difference those animals roamed around everywhere they were free to yeah. move then we came in and said, oh, you know, we're creating boundaries and this is a country and this is another country. And all of a sudden you can't cross the mm. borders and we completely destabilized everything. I, I like the point you're bringing about transboundary movement of the animals, but there's 
a lot of complexity that goes into it because of course you have to look into intergovernmental relationships and the mm-hmm. policies that you have to create around that it's a lot of work but i think it's it's quite necessary um to create more wildlife areas for for the animals to move across and also mm-hmm. just to see and i think in some instances also some some of those pathways were there historically we are the ones who came up and put in structures or you know interfered with with the movement of the animals and then they had to migrate and look for other places to go to um i think one of the things that we cannot avoid talking about is human population growth because that is a factor mm-hmm. that plays in even as we are talking about conservation and retaining these spaces the reality is we are increasing in size we're increasing in number the pressure on land is significant everybody wants to build their house you want to settle down with your family and because you're in a wildlife area again now you want to fence mm-hmm. there are there are different things that come into play there because once upon a time, fencing wasn't really a thing, but now people are educated. They've gone to school, they have financial resources, so they know, hey, a fence will protect my family and I have the money mm-hmm. to do it, so I don't need anyone to give me. I can just put up the fence if I want. And you can't blame them because a lot of people have died from human-wildlife conflicts, so it makes yeah. sense to put up a fence. But then that also interferes with the habitat for, for the wildlife and how they're able to move. Again, people... Mm-hmm within this landscape also look at having livestock as a sign of wealth. So people are constantly buying large numbers of cows, large number of sheep and everything. So before a lot of the the land was communal based, it was owned as a community, but now that Mm. people are getting their own individual parcels, that's putting out more pressure because you find somebody has a lot of sheep, a lot of cows, a lot of goats, and that's just one person. And of course, their son will want to do the same thing. Their daughter will want to do the same thing. And, you know, that's something that we really need to think about critically in the future, how sustainable are the practices that we are carrying out going to be um, in the next five or 10 years. It's so interesting because it seems that you know, we, we talk about, um, and, and I'll, I'll talk about, I'll use the phrase indigenous knowledge systems. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's so much high praise that a lot, a lot, we, we still have to learn about the indigenous knowledge systems of living in, in harmony with wildlife. And what it sounds like you're describing is that it's not it's not that we actually almost need to move back to that because it's the modernization Mm -hmm. of those indigenous knowledge systems and ways of doing things which are now creating um that they've disrupted the harmony and those things that those those modern modernization of individual parcels and not the communal that now, when you're looking at population growth, is just expanding year on year. So every single year, there's just more and more and more and more pressure. Yes. Yeah. It's unbelievable, completely. And even as you talk about modernization, you also have to look at the fact that people now want roads. So somebody mm-hmm. tells you, hey, we want tarmac. And everyone's like, I mean, I'm excited when I hear you want to put tarmac on a road, but what are the implications of yeah. putting tarmac on the road? Um, it means that 
wildlife crossings are going to be affected. A lot of wildlife mm-hmm. get killed because someone's speeding down the road. It means that the land around the road is going to increase in value. So if I'm holding this land, there's going to be a prospective buyer who's going to come and say, yeah. wow, you know, your land is right next to the road. So give me, I'll give you this amount of money, sell it to me very fast. And what will happen mm-hmm. is that you'll get all these people trying to put up structures and different facilities, yeah. eating up the space for wildlife hab- habitats. And very quickly, the entire conservation space that we have right now will disappear. There was someone who told me about the, the dopa sheep that we have in the Mara. It's quite prominent. And it's not indigenous to Kenya at all. It, it came in years ago and it just blew up in population. And the problem with the dopa sheep, as I was explained for, is that when it eats grass, it pulls the grass right out from the root completely. So when you have the sheep herding there, by the time mm-hmm. they're done, you have zero grass because they've pulled everything out from the root and it's very destructive. But then it was never indigenous to the Kenyan landscape. It was something that was brought into our country that's affecting our habitat and it's there are very large numbers it that makes it makes so much sense because you know how how the ecosystem works is you've got a whole lot of different levels of grazers mm-hmm. um and that combination of grazers is so important because each one plays a role in the renewal of the grassland but mm-hmm. when you have a species that obviously the way that they eat help to renew a grassland i don't know where they come from um that was obviously what that landscape needed to work and now you're transporting that design that that and there's a a design short circuit right um because it's completely um it's it's now destructive and and the challenges when when something like that now has value and we we spoke about this in terms of of communities and culture is how do you now transition to indigenous species that perhaps could play a role in the grassland because you cannot you can't walk into a community and go okay we're going to slaughter all of your sheep today because you know these sheep are bad for the environment we've outlawed this you know from a conservation perspective it doesn't it doesn't work that way but I mean, these are the unintended, like I always, um, like you get what you design for. And yeah. these unintended consequences is when, you know, I, I no one thought that it would happen, but also no one took time to think what would happen. Like, it's yeah. almost like, like the research phase or the understanding of like what this place was and how this component would fit in, that mm-hmm. didn't happen. And that's often like these design flaws is when you think that there's no impact uh, on the, to, to the intervention that you do. So you don't kind of look at how the piece fits together. You're just like, okay, we can just transpose one thing or one way of working, like one animal from somewhere else. Yeah. And it's only, only when it reaches a, a, sometimes a critical mass, even before you suddenly realize like, that's the screw that's now destroying the system. Completely. What you're saying takes me back to some of the discussions we had at ALU 
which at the time genuinely would frustrate me. But now I think I've had time to process and think about some <laughs> of the things that were being put at the table, which when you're looking at the design, especially in Kenya, when we are looking at how conservation has been designed, it's been linked to tourism. And yeah. I'm starting to feel like that might not be the most sustainable way to design conservation in Kenya because it has its mm-hmm. own implications. Um which are beginning to become eminent as we continue going on, because then you start to see that, um, yeah, tourism brings in money, but how sustainable mm-hmm. is it going to be? How many camps and hotels can you really build to support to support conservation? And in some of the instances, genuinely, yeah. some of the camps and the hotels are actually more destructive to the environment than just. Mm-hmm using it for something else. And I think that's a deeper conversation that probably the Kenyan government also needs to start looking at at a point. Yeah, it's um, it, it comes back to carrying capacity. And I think an interesting example for me has always been the Akavango and what mm-hmm. the Botswana government and tourism board said was, you know, they did they did the study of the Akavango Delta, um, which is such a unique and such a, a sensitive ecosystem. And they basically said, well, without, you know, we can only fit X amount of beds uh, in this ecosystem um, without like, otherwise it will, you know, have a negative impact, it will destroy the ecosystem. So if we can only have so many beds, we're only going to allow four and five star because we want to maximize the return on the bed. So mm. it's super expensive to go mm. to the Akavango Delta. Mm-hmm. But then they also said, well, you know, because it's a concession based, so you, uh, and even if you have a concession today and your concession comes up for renewal, you, you have to submit and other people are going to submit an application and you could lose that concession doesn't matter what you have there, like you can lose it overnight. And Mm -hmm. that's an interesting way that the government's put into place to say we're limiting, I think it was 15 years for a concession. So Mm -hmm. you can break even um, if you invest in it. And that allowed them to kind of change the the laws and the policies and the regulations to say, you are not allowed to build foundations. What Mm -hmm. you build has to be removed. Because you might be here 15 years only. Yeah, if you're good enough, we'll give you longer. But we're, we can't promise because we're going to judge it if someone else has a better proposal that's you know going to benefit the community and benefit the environment more, Like then you've lost out. Um, and then, the, then they brought in, well, you actually, we realize you can't just put sewage into all of this water. So Mm -hmm. now you have to have your own sewage, um, complete sewage system because you Mm -hmm. can only let up, you know, you have to. And also you have to be off the grid. So, you know, you have to be working with, um, I think now they're going to go to to solar. Um, Like you could still have generator at at one stage. Um, But I think that the the concessioning and the limiting um, designing for kind of like a limitation meant mm-hmm. that they could change the design of the system to kind of improve it incrementally, but it was enough yeah. time to learn lessons. Um, and that, that's been an interesting, interesting example. But then of course, it, the, the, the question remains how much value realistically 
Mm-hmm. Can you bring it? And then, of course, COVID had its whole whole other upset yes. to tourism. Yes. And, you know, it's something we looked up at Alu, which was saying, you know, we've designed conservation based purely on beds. Mm-hmm. Like, that's it. Yeah. And yeah. and actually, should they not, should it not be uh, a more, I'm going to use the word sustainable model, for lack of a better word, but a more robust <laughs> A model that's not just reliant on one pillar because it's like a monocrop. You're only farming mm-hmm. one thing. You're putting the entire system at risk. That's why you want to have diverse crops on a farm because if your yeah. one crop fails, at least you're not bankrupt, right? Yeah. So it's like the, the same type of thinking as farming. So the question then, which I don't know if we'll be able to, perhaps we're going to have to go into in another episode, Um yeah. Is, is this question of like, you know, if we're not completely, how do we design a system which is not completely um, reliant on tourism? You know, what other types of wildlife economy practices um, perhaps we need to be designing for wildlife economy rather than conservation? I agree with you. That's a very, very valid point. And at the heart of it for me also is how accessible are all these alternatives and even the existing model, how accessible is it to women Mm. in conservation? Yeah. How much are they able to contribute and how much value do they also get from what we have and also what we are proposing, Mm. some of the things that we are proposing? How many women are actually involved in that process? How many women actually get anything from it? Yeah, I mean, often, like, I find it quite sad because often that involvement is just craft. So, oh, the woman did beading and you can buy a beaded mm. necklace. Mm. And that's kind of like, there we go. We created an alternative livelihood for women. I know. It's just the same box. And you can't tell me that all women can only contribute beadwork and, you know, other things, craft and cute bags mm. for in conservation. There's so much more that they can do. So... That's something also that I think should be at the heart of the design as we think about alternatives yeah. for conservation. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's it's different roles, it's different systems, and it goes back to that profound statement you made. You know, we're focused so much at trying to give everybody a seat at the same table that we're not paying we're we're not paying any attention to what's really needed, which, you know, is new tables, new chairs, new rooms even yeah. that, that we should be focusing on creating. Yeah, completely. We, we really need to think outside the box um, in, in terms of innovating, in terms of designing spaces that are going to outlive us all. We cannot mm-hmm. afford to think about solutions that will only take us two years or three years and then yeah. within that short amount of time we're going back to the drawing board we we really have to take time to think about it but that also means including people in these discussions when you're having these discussions 100%. in meetings and in rooms I'm so sick and tired of attending meetings and being the only woman where mm-hmm. all the women where are they you know and somebody will tell you yeah. oh you know she's in a meeting she's 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 working on, you know, some payment or some I'm like, bring her, just bring her, let her sit in the table. Even if she won't talk, let her get used to hearing people talk. Then slowly start encouraging them of okay, now ask a question, raise your voice. And then if you have an idea, don't be afraid, you know, vocalize it. Let's hear what you have to think. 
and slowly, mm-hmm. slowly just start shifting the narrative. But I'm I'm genuinely really tired of walking into spaces where you find you're the only woman and the way the discussion is going is geared towards one direction and it's so hard to get everybody to see what you are seeing and to advocate for what you want to advocate. Because you're yeah. one voice in the room. Yeah, because you're the yeah. only voice. Yeah, And everyone's yeah. like, oh, you know, you're just being very complicated and you're just being difficult. Yeah, which, which is not true. It's, it's so interesting, you know, when we're talking about the need for innovation and talking about the need to design new systems, like especially in the context of climate change going forwards, our existing system has to change, you know, we, we need to be more adaptive. Yeah. And when we're talking about that, it's so interesting is that we always forget to talk about, well, who's going to be doing the designing? And how are you including like the mm-hmm. most diversity of voices and points of view mm-hmm. in in the room mm-hmm. so that the system can be created by everybody? Because yeah. it's quite a different conversation to say, well, we've designed it and we're going to tell you what to do. Then, well, we've designed this new ecosystem together yeah. and we haven't got it all figured out quite yet. But, you know, we're we're going to figure it out. But we, we all are part of this rather than the separation of we're going to tell you how this is now going to work. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. And looking at that, because what you're saying takes me back to a recent meeting that we held, we, we had a a special AGM, and we were presenting financial reports, which is incredibly important. But mm. the person who's presenting the financial reports could only speak in English, and most of the people oh. in the room could only understand Kiswahili and Maasai. And what he was presenting is also hard to translate into another language. So then when he was done with the presentation, someone stood up and acknowledged that and said, you know, what you've presented is important, but most of us don't really understand what you're saying. If you had spoken mm. in a language we could understand, if you had the report in our language, we would be able to contribute richly to this discussion. But for now, mm. we really can't because there is that barrier. And I think mm. we need to look at some of those complexities in terms of how are we also communicating this message so that we can actually also include people. Because when you're talking about designing, language plays a factor. such a a big factor yeah big factor and we need to look at that translate it in a way that people can comprehend and capture it and be able to contribute because a lot of those people are very sharp they have a lot of ideas and things that will shift things around completely but if you're not able to communicate effectively to them a lot of things Mm -hmm. get lost but i also it also um talks to how you communicate because often there's a there's a nice way to hide information so if you if you talk with like um what's like legalese like like all of these uh, like my sister's a doctor so when Mm -hmm. I, i ask her a question she talks in like a language i definitely don't understand because it's incredibly technical doctor speak and i always have to go well can you please translate that to english for me So it's the same with like finance, like when somebody who's brilliant with finance talks finance, 
I'm not a finance like expert. I don't know all the terms. So I kind of need it to be broken down. Yeah. I'm not stupid. I have, I have a basis of understanding, but often a lot is hidden behind technical language. And I think that, that this, this, um, when, when you hide behind technical language, um, and you make things very complicated, you create also create a barrier for, um, feedback and and learning and integration and for people to like you actually miss out on the value you could get you know from a room completely completely so that is important um communication i think is the heart of everything Mm. and we really need to take that seriously especially when you're talking about engaging communities in conservation that's Mm. that's huge and that's also where I like how our organization is designed in the sense that we work a lot with a lot of our employees are from the community. So then it's easier to break down that barrier because they're able to go down and so like, hey, and talk directly to that very old man who's like 90 years old in his little oh. maniata and they're able to explain to him exactly what we're doing. And then they're able to get the buy-in and say, we support you. Um so you know there there are different things that you need to look at when you're when you're talking about inclusivity i think inclusion is such it is so complex in so many ways it is so so complex there's no mm. easy answer to it no it has to be like it has to be so nuanced and and we we create such a a blanket um yeah. and a very black and white very there's a very like polarized discussion often with it and and it really it has to be so for it for things to be truly inclusive that you have to have nuance because you know I like you having people within the community within the organization enables them to be able to uh, you know for the community to be part of the organization but at the same time for them to translate back um, and help the community understand what the organization is doing but also understand where the community is coming from and translate that back into the organization so you're almost creating a flow of of communication and uh, a common language yeah 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 so which is so powerful that's very powerful Um, and I've seen the impact that has had, especially on so many other different layers, even when you're talking about gender issues, I personally can't speak for gender issues for the women from the Mara, but the women that I work with are able to share stories and they're able to go mm. to the field and connect with these women on such a deep and personal level. And some of this feedback they bring back is amazing and mind-blowing and it's things you would never think about because it just doesn't comprehend in your world but in their world it's very real and there's just a way that people feel comfortable talking to somebody who is familiar and has a similar background with them if you speak the language that I speak it, it breaks down so many barriers but when you're coming in and you don't even talk like me you don't know where I come from you you've never really stayed here so you don't understand the little issues that I have then I'm only going to give you so much information. I'm not really going to explain the issues and, and the challenges that I face internally. Yeah. So that's that's something that's been incredibly important. Yeah. 
and also when you're when you're an outsider um you 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 don't know um what you're missing yeah um and you you don't you don't know enough of of the nuances or you know even if you can do as much research as you like there there is so much that you can't access because there is so much that you only share with people you trust where people who who you share a cultural bond and it they're often questions that you wouldn't even think to ask um because because it it just it's not it's not kind of in your frame of reference in a way um and to me that's that's so interesting and it comes a lot to like designing and development in conservation um a lot of even in our designing for wicked problems is that mm-hmm. you know we think that you know we can go in and do em- empathy as as a design thinking process and you know put our put our feet into somebody else's shoes and moccasin walk right and yeah. and then you know we'll find out all the most important things we need and we can design the solution that works and it doesn't it doesn't work that way you know like it's yeah. not possible yeah completely um i i think we really need to unpack although i don't like using the word unpack <laughs> but we we need to we need to really think about how we are approaching things and mm-hmm. one of the fundamental things that i personally believe is core to everything we're discussing even when you're talking about inclusion is education i've had mm. fixed opinions everybody has their own opinion of oh you know if we get this right this is what will solve all the problems for me it's always been education because i feel like education unlocks a lot of things when you educate people then they're able to make better decisions then they're able mm. to represent themselves better on different levels because right now we've mm. talked a lot about community based conservation but when we're talking about inclusion we cannot forget the desk jobs we're talking about the bigger conservation organizations across the world yeah. across the globe how do we get these people from the community sitting in those organizations as well making yes. decisions on that level changing the policies and speaking for their people in that space we shouldn't also just box them only into community you should only stick to mm. this landscape because you're from here we should also be building their capacity to the point that they can get into those organizations and make decisions on bigger levels 100% because a lot of what happens in in conservation happens at an international level by INGOs so um mm-hmm. you know international uh, NGOs in the conservation world and there's there's a, a huge concern and a lack of I, I hate that, like indigenous voices and yeah. and within that system and like I'm curious is like there there's such a need um and i wonder what would happen if you took you know the 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 maasai mara community and linked them to a community from south america and mm-hmm. you know indigenous community from australia and you have suddenly a knowledge sharing and experience sharing yeah. at such a profound level and if that then feeds into you know this greater international system for conservation yeah. um that applies to all of these landscapes with one like singular brush stroke 
Um, because yeah, the funding works at that level, right? And oh, I just, is. I wonder how much more we would learn and how much better we would be. That's such an interesting, you know, personally, I'm like, Daniela, you're organizing this conference. I'm happy to help you organize it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Let's yeah, do this. Yeah, no, I would love to. You know, it's so interesting because there is, there's a, a group in, I used to say Canada, probably, uh-huh. um, who organize an indigenous tourism conference and they bring indigenous communities and tourism together. Oh, and really? I was just actually wondering, like, what well, does that happen? I mean, we just had, didn't we just have a massive... Uh, the massive IUCN conference this year. And then for the first yeah. time, there was one in Africa, right? Yeah, yeah, it was in Africa. And APAC. also COP is going to be in Africa mm-hmm. next month, I think. Next month, I think November. Oh, yeah. I feel like like this should be organized, like, yeah, I, maybe as something as an adjunct to one of those events, because that, that would be super interesting. That would be super because... interesting. I would want to be there and see how that goes. It would be very interesting. Me too. I think, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know how you go about designing such a thing, but you know, only one way to find out, like, <laughs> knock on people's doors. Ask. I know, yeah. But it would be great to get all these different communities coming together from all over the world. I that experience yeah. would be so rich, and I'm sure we just our minds would be blown. That honestly, I would love to see it because I'm also quite interested in. We've talked about it, the communities in South Africa mm. and how they are doing their thing and the different interventions that they are playing out. And that looks also very different from what the Kenyans are, are using. Yeah, We've mentioned very. Botswana and all these other different countries. It will just be so fascinating to hear what everyone is doing. That's a good idea. And to share experiences. I mean, even within the African continent, you know, from Southern Africa to East Africa, from one country to the next. Yeah. yeah. There are so many different learnings. I mean, West Africa, completely different. We've got like insane landscapes, which even include deserts. I'd be fascinated with Australia, though. Australia would blow my mind. I would would love to hear what Australians have to say. The Borygians. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, I, I would, I would be so interested to, um, for the, for the synchronicities and the resonance to happen in like the, the, the traditions and the culture and the way of thinking about, about the environment and wildlife. Um, and that, that harmony, because I just, I think I think if you could you could map the knowledge and and the, the, the knowledge that comes out of that, we would have a really mm. interesting foundation for mm. for a much more nuanced roadmap. It, mm. Nuanced international <laughs> conservation <laughs> model. Oh, that would be fun. that would be great. That would be yeah. Please design it. I'm ready to volunteer and just help you. I will I will do everything to get that going <laughs> i know we're gonna have to think i actually i we we got a couple of people from alu we should uh we should we reach can, out we to i know the door off. yeah yeah Why not? that's true <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully the audience agrees we may have people mm. knocking on our door <laughs> i know please do please do but this has been, I, I think we're going to have to have a follow-up conversation without a doubt because there's so much, I think I would love to dig into like the wildlife economy with you. Um, 
you know, because that that's something that we've had so many discussions around um, on top of, you know, many other things that, that we discussed um, as a group during our MBA journey. But it has been just oh, such an amazing conversation. I just have a page full of like quotes from you. Um, like I, you've given me so much to chew on. Um, so I hope that everybody else enjoys the conversation as, as much as I did. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Like, do, do you, do you want to like leave the audience with like one last thought? <laughs> well, first I just want to say thank you for having me. This has been such an interesting discussion to have and much needed. And I don't even think we've scratched the surface. I think no. we could have easily gone on for another two hours. Um, easy. And <laughs> easy, easy, easy gone on for easy. another two hours. Yeah. But I think the challenge, um, maybe not the challenge, but the question I'd want to pose to the audience is let, let's not look at solutions in a boxed approach. And let us not be so quick to dismiss opinions of others when they're presented on the table. Let's be curious. Let's keep an open mind. And be open to the possibilities that the future holds. Don't think of solutions in tunnel vision. There's a lot that's happening out there. So remain curious, remain open, and together we will get to the solution for sure. Oh. I, I, you, I like, like you've actually given me like uh, goosebumps with that. Um, I, uh, what an incredible way to end um, an amazing conversation. Thank, Thank you for you having so me, Danielle. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of What's Design Anyway? If this tickled your synapses, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app and on at what's design anyway so that you don't miss the next juicy episode don't forget to go to the show notes to get more info about our guest and links of where to find them and also special shout out goes to capitalistic village for the awesome music